Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're joined by laryngologist Dr. Greg Dion to discuss unilateral vocal fold paralysis. Dr. Dion, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. As always, John, it's a pleasure to be here and contribute. So I think sometimes as a resident, it's been confusing when I read various literature on this topic. There's several different words used to describe paralysis, paresis, immobility, hypomobility. Could we just start with a brief description of this different terminology? For sure, absolutely. I, li- I like how you want to dive right into the controversies. You know, don't pull any punches here. Uh, so I, I think the best way to, to think of it is what do we see and what do we say? So what we see is mobility, right? We'll see vocal fold immobility, um, which is obviously non-movement. And that could be from any number of causes, a mechanical or, or neurologic. So you could have something like cricoarytenoid joint fixation causing immobility as, as well as something like paralysis. And then you have hypomobility, which, as we know, means, you know, it moves, but not quite normal. And so that's this partial movement. And interestingly enough, that also can be from paralysis because you might have other intrinsic laryngeal muscles allowing movement in the setting of paralysis. So when we think about immobility and hypomobility, we're, we're really talking about, you know, what do we what do we see? And then, you know, the traditional terms of paralysis, obviously, is referring to um, you know, nerve injury, not permitting motion of the vocal folds, and then paresis as that kind of nerve weakness. So, you know, there is uh, quite a bit of controversy around these and semantics involved. But the reality is understanding it as a resident and a broad overview is if we kind of understand what's happening in the, the setting of immobility, hypomobility, paralysis, and paresis, that really helps set the framework for our discussion today. So I'm glad you threw out that easy one first. Of course. Yeah. So just transitioning then to patient presentation, how are these patients typically presenting? Yeah. Well, this is really fascinating because this extends across essentially all parts of otolaryngology. You know, this this could be kids, this could be adults, it could be patients in neurotology clinic or, you know, obviously a laryngologist or a head and neck surgeon. So in this case, just like with most things, we want to say, where did this referral source come from? Is this, you know, a patient being referred from general surgery after a thyroidectomy or something? It gives us some sense of where these may have come from, or was it, you know, somebody who underwent a chest surgery, and that helps us out. Additionally, some of these patients can be entirely asymptomatic, or they could have significant dysphonia or dysphagia bringing them uh, into the clinic. Interestingly enough, in, in the past year, our academy, uh, American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Surgery, put out a new clinical practice guideline specifically on dysphonia. And, you know, given all of the potential things that could be a problem that are significant, if a patient seen by a primary care physician or, or a gastroenterologist or another provider and doesn't appear to have improvement in this voice over about four weeks' time frame, or if there's a concern for serious underlying causes, they should get visualization with laryngoscopy. So that's a common source of referral nowadays. So it's also important to consider, like I had mentioned, where do they come from? Are we thinking about an iatrogenic injury uh, or was there airway manipulation from being intubated or are they being sent for an upper respiratory tract infection with cough and dysphonia? So I think a lot of these things, especially with the publication of the new clinical practice guideline, will influence uh, the type of patient that shows up. But because of the fact that malignancies can also present this way, especially in patients with a history of uh, tobacco and alcohol use or a history of another cancer, it's really important that um, we're in tune to this in patients referred for uh, hoarse voice, new onset dysphagia uh, as well. So that's kind of a, a broad overview of these patients could be, you know, any age from infant through elderly, but I think you really have to look at those new patients coming in hoarse to sort it out. And you just mentioned a little bit about malignancy. Um, When we think about differential diagnosis, if we could go to that next, could you touch on first maybe the different malignancies or how to think about that in this context? Yeah, I like the kind of way that you're laying this out, right? So we have general things, like you said, that could be malignancies, we could be talking about hydrogenic or, or neurologic, et cetera. And so looking at malignancy is a great place to start. So Obviously, you could be talking about a laryngeal tumor, so a primary laryngeal tumor that could be a giant cell tumor. It could be squamous cell carcinoma of the larynx most commonly um, affecting the vocal fold vibrations in the voice. So that's clearly why a lot of these people are referred. Um, That being said, the role of extra laryngeal tumors in causing dysphonia is not insubstantial. So 
when we think outside of the larynx, what could cause someone to be hoarse, a common one, really probably the most common is a lung tumor. So if you have a tumor in the upper lobe of the lung, particularly on that left side, it's going to end up compressing the nerve and you get a unilateral vocal fold paralysis. This is very commonly seen. You may have primary esophageal tumor. So in the setting of an esophageal tumor, remember that the recurrent laryngeal nerve runs in that tracheoesophageal groove. And so if that is compressed or twisted or even involved, then you could get impact of the nerve either via compression or invasion and, and as a result, reduce function. It could be a thyroid malignancy that has grown causing compression. So your thyroid sits in that region. Medial stinal tumors. So, you know, any of these medial stinal tumors, when we think about the course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve, puts that at risk for compression or invasion. And then all the way up into the skull base, we can have skull base tumors that we deal with as otolaryngologists or our neurosurgeon colleagues that can cause compression on this nerve and as a result end up with vocal fold. Uh, immobility. So these are very, very important things and really should be the first thing on the mind that you want to to rule out. So I, I do like that you kind of led with that because when we think about these, this is really the reason these patients are, a lot of them are initially referred. When you think about the patient, their first thought when they're hoarse and it's not going away and it's not from a cold is, do they have some kind of cancer? And, and there's a lot of cancers that can end up um, not only intrinsically in the larynx, but these extra laryngeal tumors causing uh, unilateral vocal fold immobility. So that's a great place to start and very important to rule out. And what about iatrogenic causes? Yeah, so iatrogenic causes are very common. It's not uncommon at all as a laryngologist or an otolaryngologist to get a referral for a patient who's undergone some kind of procedure. So, so we can break this down a couple of ways. Looking at things that we're not thinking that the nerve itself was traumatized surgically would be patient maybe was intubated for some kind of belly procedure or some orthopedic procedure, and upon extubation, they're found to be really hoarse. It doesn't improve for a while. They're sent to the otolaryngologist. You visualize the larynx, find a unilateral vocal fold immobility, and there's you know a number of things that could cause that. So immediately afterwards, it could be cricoarytenoid joint subluxation, right? So you have your retinoid subluxation. It could be that there was um, pressure in the subglottic region, which is compressing the area where the recurrent laryngeal nerve enters the larynx, and that could cause a unilateral vocal fold immobility, more common uh, suspected reason. And so that's something we would further work up. But when you mention iatrogenic, I think traditionally people are thinking like, wow, was a nerve injured during a, a surgical procedure to the neck or uh, upper mediastinum. So again, that goes to what did the patient undergo? So if they underwent a mediastinal exploration for a biopsy or removal of a mass by a cardiothoracic surgeon in those areas or a heart surgery, certainly, especially on the left, when we think about that recurrent laryngeal nerve course, that nerve is at risk. And so it can be a number of things could happen. You could have thermal damage from during surgery from a bovi or no, another thermal instrument. The nerve could be severed partially entirely. The nerve could be compressed or re in a retractor. And so that can be problematic. Thyroid surgery is obviously another one that we all think about. So it turns out that it's not that common after thyroid surgery. But when you start thinking about the number of thyroid surgeries done, even uncommon things done in large, large numbers end up happening. So we see them. Then we move on to uh, another common thing, especially in the current day and age is cervical spine surgery by neurosurgeons or ortho spine surgeons. And in that case, you're talking about maybe two to 7% that end up with some sort of uh, vocal fold uh, weakness or immobility after that surgery. So and then we could also have anyone who undergoes any kind of esophageal surgery and esophagectomy for cancer or something along those lines, any neck surgery that we can think of again, especially around the area of the tracheoesophageal groove could cause issues for vocal fold immobility. So those are the main kinds of iatrogenic injuries from surgery. And I guess we could expand iatrogenic, so to speak, in terms of trauma, you know, being a victim of uh, gunshot wounds. So stabbings to the neck and those that may involve the course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve, or even the cavitation caused by that bullet traversing the neck could cause nerve damage, neuropraxia that then results in unilateral vocal fold immobility. So if we think about is in some sense iatrogenic because some projectile uh, could be a machete, could be a knife, could be a bullet that has traversed that area and either disrupted or the edema from that in the region has caused impact on the nerve. So those are also common reasons that a patient can 
have unilateral focal fault immobility. And you mentioned previously neurologic etiologies. Could you touch on that as well? Yeah. So interestingly enough, the term neurologic fits a lot of what we're talking about because compression of the nerve or or partially cutting the nerve, technically, those are nerve issues. But from a broader context, it's possible somebody who had an infarction of the pica could lead to vocal fold paralysis. You can have any of these etiologies that affect the motor nucleus of the vagus and the medulla or the nucleus ambiguous multiple sclerosis, ALS, um, these could all affect and impact somebody having unilateral vocal fold immobility. If we think about like even Arnold Chiari or Danny Walker syndrome, as we compress different areas, um, we can end up causing impacts on the recurrent laryngeal nerve and as a result have vocal fold um, immobility. So these are all things that you consider in, in your workup and for your differential, if you haven't found anything else, you know, make sure we're working out what's going on from a more global neurologic perspective. And I know, you know, we could obviously go on for hours with this, but a couple other high yield ones I wanted to ask you about uh, other causes like systemic disorders or toxins or infections, anything else worth mentioning there? Oh, certainly. I, I think systemic diseases uh, can, can be significantly problematic. We think about especially autoimmune stuff. We, we start talking about rheumatoid arthritis. Someone with severe rheumatoid arthritis can develop cricoarytenoid joint fixation. And in that case, you're going to have an immobile vocal fold related to a systemic disease. You know, other things that have been linked has been sarcoid. And, you know, there's some thought that, that people's immune systems are depleted in diabetes. And so all these things should be considered when you're working it up. In a broader context, one of the things we haven't mentioned, which is very, very common, is idiopathic unilateral vocal fold paralysis, meaning that we don't really know what the reason is. Conceptually, the thought is that there's potentially a small viral prodrome or there's a small viral impact on the nerve in which it's causing unilateral paralysis or paresis, meaning you're going to see hypomobility or, or immobility that we generally follow to see you know, at what level is that going to improve and those numbers vary depending upon whose data you read and what what the literature says over the years. I mean, that may be as much as 75% recovering or turn that around and saying a lot of them don't recover. I think a lot of that depends on, you know, electromyographic patterns and other information. But linked in with the concept that in some cases, people believe that the idiopathic is, is linked to a, a viral prodrome or a viral syndrome. We could talk about other infectious links and, and there's some question of, TB generally in the context of uh, tuberculosis affecting the lungs and, and that inflammation impacting the recurrent laryngeal nerve or, or Lyme disease based on the pattern of how Lyme affects the body or even something like syphilis has been just for the sake of completeness. There's some question of heavy metals such as lead or arsenic, though that is far less common. So I think the kind of the way you went through our differentials was, was really thoughtful, right? We started with you know, ruling out malignancy, most important thing. That's generally why a lot of these people are referred. Then we look at, you know, had they undergone a procedure for an iatrogenic injury or, or a trauma, moving then into the more nuanced diagnosis of neurologic conditions, infectious systemic diseases, or, or the idiopathic. And in terms of pathophysiology, how do all these things kind of work together to end up manifesting in the clinical presentation that we discussed earlier? Yeah. So I think without doing too much of a anatomy deep dive, overall, when we talk about the larynx, we're thinking about the cricoid thyroid cartilage um, relationship with the arytenoid sitting on top of the posterior ring of the, the cricoid cartilage rotating and uh, sliding forward and backwards. Specifically, how these muscles that control that motion interact with the nerves. So if we think about our, our intrinsic muscles of the larynx, we're going to talk about the recurrent laryngeal nerve innervating the PCA and the interarytenoid. So generally speaking, though, there are a number of uh, innervation patterns outlined and described to date on the branching pattern of the recurrent laryngeal nerve as it enters the larynx, in general, accepted to kind of be that posterior branch of the recurrent laryngeal nerve as it enters the larynx, um, innervating the PCA, posterior cricoarytenoid muscle, which is the only muscle that abducts, means opens the larynx and opens the vocal folds, and the uh, inner arytenoid muscle, which is actually bilaterally innervated and the only muscle as such. So if we go with probably the most common branching pattern of the recurrent laryngeal nerve, although note this this may vary between individuals, um, you also innervate the vocalis muscle, thyroarytenoid muscle, and lateral cricoarytenoid muscles. So those are all the muscles that in some way, shape, or form or grouping could be impacted 
in the setting of something impacting the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And then when we talk about the superior laryngeal nerve, you know, we have the internal branch which gives the sensory input. And then you have the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve, which innervates the cricothyroid muscle, what allows our cricoid cartilage and, and thyroid cartilage to interact, lengthening the vocal folds, increasing our pitch, uh, providing additional information. So with these numerous muscles and structures contributing to the complex production of phonation in the human, you can imagine or envision how there are many ways that you could end up structure altering or impairing mobility. This is a small area. So, you know, if you have vocal fold mobility. So from a very, you know, simple standpoint, you can start with the framework. You could have invasion of a local tumor of some sorts into some surrounding uh, multiple muscles that are innervated or are invaded by a tumor uh, that could create issues with rotation of the uh, arytenoids or impact their overall pliability and structure, which would change voice and cause it to be hoarse or potentially immobile. Then more commonly from what we're thinking about outside of just a structural you know, space occupying tumor would be anything that impacts a nerve. And so you could envision from just looking at this, how the nerve could be impacted far away, meaning at the skull base or anywhere along the course, extra laryngeally, and that's going to impact all of those muscles. So if it's at the skull base with the vagus, well, now you could have recurrent and superior laryngeal nerve paralysis versus having one or the other affected depending upon the type of injury. And then furthermore, if you start thinking about something closer to the larynx, so in some cases, this branching pattern of the recurrent laryngeal nerve actually occurs outside of the larynx. And, and so maybe only one of those branches was was impacted by you know an injury or, or something else. So there's a lot of ways to consider it. Traditionally, the SLN paralysis outside of a broad vagal injury, which impact both, especially at the skull base, and isolated SL injuries typically thought of conceptually as something that might happen after like a thyroid surgery where a patient comes in with perhaps they have trouble with their voice, meaning when you deep dive into what that means to them, they, they can't modulate their pitch as they once did, or uh, perhaps maybe there's some sensory issues because sensory innervation with the, with the superior laryngeal nerve. So from a pathophysiology standpoint, you're talking mechanical, right? So any mass or structure. And then from a, a nerve standpoint, it gets pretty intricate pretty quick because if the nerve was crushed and or severed, how does it come back? Do all the nerve fibers come back? Only some of them, you know, do you get regular innervation, neuropraxia? Do you end up with synkinesis There's in the setting of, of a severed or partially severed nerve? So there's lots of things that could relate and become problematic. For example, uh, a, sever, a severed nerve that is either still close by or partially cut. Interestingly enough, your recurrent laryngeal nerve innervates both the muscles that open and close the glottis for your voice production. Well, if those become misaligned, you're going to get synkinesis and, and immobility, um, regardless if the muscle was completely cut. And then, you know, from a, a broader standpoint, if you were talking about, you know, overall heavy metal poisoning or another infectious etiology, you could be impairing, you know, nerve conduction or uh, overall bodily functions. Transitioning now to workup, we've talked about presentation, differential diagnosis, and now pathophysiology. Maybe just starting with you know, history and physical, we've touched a little on history already, but anything else you'd like to add to that? And then how do you think about the physical exam? Yeah, I think this is maybe the most important part to, to really sit down and discuss and think about, not only in terms of how do we get to an answer, but also a thoughtful approach to the patient. So, and one of the, the first things you do when you meet a patient is you're going to introduce yourself and having some basic salutations. And so in a really not prompted context, you're able to garner some information about that patient's voice and really assess their perceptual voice quality in a natural conversational tone, rather than the number of tests that we're going to prompt the patient to do. And those prompted tests can alter laryngeal, you know, biomechanics and dynamics in such a way that that they may mask or alter what's actually happening. So, you know, just the act of sitting there talking to the patient, you're going to see if, you know, they need to take multiple breaths to, to finish a sentence. You're going to see if they're hard to hear and they have a breathy quality to their voice, or perhaps you end up with diplophonia where, you, where they have actually two frequencies simultaneously um, based on the vibratory pattern. So 
just that very first portion of the introduction, you're really acquiring a lot of information and it's going to help drive kind of what you're thinking in terms of, you know, what may have happened, what's going on here. And and also, how is this impacting the patient? Um, A lot of times we're like trying to make a diagnosis and score, you know, a home run in terms of a treatment plan, but understanding how this is impacting a patient is is really key. So when you're doing that history um, while you're listening carefully and, you know, you're going to go through your history to eliminate all those things we talked about, like heavy metal exposure, systemic diseases, recent infections, recent surgeries, um, risk factors for malignancy. Now, moving into the physical exam, some of the things you, you might see to help narrow things down would be if you're suspecting a high vagal injury, the palate will elevate to the opposite side, meaning away from the, the site of injury. So that could, you know, be something you would notice. Some other things would obviously be like surgical scars or something. And then in a large context, you're going to see as the patient sitting there with, with large, broad knuckles, their fingers curled up or kyphosis from rheumatoid arthritis, you're going to be able to pick up on those in your overall discussions with the patients. Other things you're going to collect at the time would be uh, some basic voice data, right? We could do a maximum phonation time. So that's when you're going to have the patient take a deep inhalation and then sustain a, a steady vowel sound for as long as possible. And so what we're looking for there is that in general, 15 to 25 seconds in women and, and 25 to 35 seconds in men, it would be our normative values. And so if you're finding that the, the patient is just immediately losing air, which is, is really not uncommon in that unilateral vocal fold paralysis situation, five seconds later, they've expired all their air and they can't sustain the vowel sound anymore. It's really going to help kind of point you in the direction. And so those tasks without really using any instruments or tools are very, very valuable. There's a number of other things that I think are really important to collect, and that would be the subjective voice quality. So, you know, you could use the voice handicap index or the shorter version, the voice handicap index 10, the validated surveys that really allow you to understand how this voice issue is affecting the patients. Because if they come back and say like, yeah, it might be hoarse, but it doesn't impact me, that's going to alter not necessarily your diagnostic approach, but potentially your your treatment approach. So, you know, these are really key things to understand as a as a surgeon as you approach the patient. And what about laryngoscopy here and video stroboscopy? Yeah, we mentioned early on that as illustrated in the the recent clinical practice guidelines and as well as common sense, patients showing up that have been hoarse, particularly for weeks on end, by the time they get to a, um, a laryngologist or, a, or an otolaryngologist, you need to visualize the larynx. And so what are we looking for there? Traditionally, you know, we, we did the mirror exam so people could see, but really you want to assess a couple of things. So first and foremost, you want to assess basic mobility. Are we seeing vocal folds move just not as good as they used to or incompletely? Or are we seeing complete immobility on one side versus immobility on the nerve side, which is a discussion in and of itself? So we're going to look and say, okay, so do we have a unilateral vocal fold that doesn't move as symmetrically as the other, or maybe it doesn't move at all? Or circling back to an early kind of iatrogenic issue, you know, is this patient maybe even a little short of breath and being seen right after being extubated and you you scope them, you look down and you've got this forward rotation and, and you can see the arytenoids kind of falling off the cricoid cartilage and essentially into the airway, suggesting arytenoid subluxation. Those are the things you're, you're looking for. So after you're able to assess basic mobility based on uh, your initial laryngoscopy, you can decide what to do, do next. There's been this concept years ago that, well, where the immobile vocal fold lies tells me where the initial lesion was. And so if you really start reading into the literature, this also is a little bit of a controversial topic. So it's possible for a number of etiologies to end up in the paramedian or cadaveric position. Or I think that although traditionally we've wanted to be able to look at a larynx and say, hey, I see how that vocal fold looks. I know where the lesion is. I think, you know, there's enough evidence to suggest that that might be a bit aggressive to say that we can do that. But noting, you know, the position and what it looks like is is key. So now the other thing we can get involved in is is video stroboscopy. And I think the role of video stroboscopy in the setting of vocal fold immobility can't be understated because we can collect all kinds of information. We're going to look at the specific waveform of the vocal fold to look for um, what's that mucosal waveform? Is there asymmetry in that waveform? Or 
perhaps a, a decrease or later vibratory onset suggestive of the vibration on the injured side being kickstarted by the airflow velocity and motion on the other side. Also, um, you're going to see maybe a decreased velocity in that ipsilateral vocal fold where your injury is or your immobility is that, that can help your visualization of motion of the larynx as well as your employing video stroboscopy to make a thoughtful plan moving forward are really key topics. And what about EMG? Any role for that here? Yeah. So yet another one of uh, those can of worms you want to open. So electromyography can be really helpful um, in some circumstances. However, nothing is without its drawbacks. Some of the issues around electromyography is that it is extremely dependent on both the electromyographer, be that an otolaryngologist or a laryngologist, or be that a neurologist that specializes in electromyography reading the the signals, as well as the needle placement. So you have to imagine that if that needle placement is just a millimeter or two off of one of the muscles, either the LCA muscle, PCA muscle, vocalis, TA, or CT muscle, you're going to get, you know, aberrant information. And then even in the setting of results suggestive of, say, polyphasic potentials suggestive of reinnervation, um, it's possible to then not have recruitment of those muscles and really not have an improvement uh, long-term. So there are certainly proponents for it and with good reason in the correct setting with the correct people, with the correct training. That being said, um, it's also possible that a lot of situations, you you know, it has limited uh, utility and, and especially in patients who've already undergone a bunch of procedures, um, it is a, a procedure for them to undergo. So I, you know, it is worth considering mentioning and in, depending upon your, your individual situation, availability of equipment and expertise can be employed, but it may or may not fit in uh, to the process. And any role for imaging here? Yeah. So imaging also big, broad topic up front. Some of the quasi-clinic imaging would be like a video fluoroscopy. So depending upon your setup, this might be nearby. This might be done in the radiology suite. Um, and, and that's a chance to assess, you know, any chance of aspiration. Um, one of those things that you would have gone through and assessed in your history and physical exam. Um, were they having any any issues with drinking water and coughing when they drink water or uh, aspiration pneumonias? And that's going to help drive your treatment plan. But the best way to assess that, you know, would be, um, probably imaging with a video fluoroscopic swell study so you can assess for penetration aspiration, though some of that can be done with an in-clinic functional endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. So from a, a more traditional imaging context, chest x-ray might show you like a lung tumor, like tuberculosis or something in the upper lobe of the lung. If you have a completely immobile vocal fold, it's really critical uh, that you get some kind of imaging, either computed tomography or magnetic resonance imaging from the skull base through the superior mediastinum to identify any lesions along the course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve or even the vagus that may be causing an impinging on the motion. So it's not uncommon to, you know, see a patient and maybe they come in with unilateral right-sided vocal fold paralysis and then you're working it up and say, you know, this looks like something we can help you with. It's clearly problematic. Let's just get an MRI and they come back with a glomus tumor. So that is really something we need to be uh, mindful of in, in the workup. So, you know, it is mentioned in the clinical practice guidelines that, you know, imaging shouldn't be done until there's visual visualization of the larynx, but in the setting of a known immobile vocal fold, you uh, generally should do imaging of the course of recurrent laryngeal nerve. And then it's a little more of a nuanced discussion when we're talking about hypomobility, you know, how are we defining hypomobile? Is there just a twitch or is it, you know, just a little weak? And, and, you know, that's where your clinical judgment is going to help you decide if you should image or not. And then I guess, you know, the other thing people ask about sometimes far less common is what, what about labs? Should we be screening everyone for syphilis? Syphilis is certainly on the rise in certain parts of our country. These are not tests such as Lyme titers, thyroid function studies, toxin screens that are routinely recommended from a unilateral vocal fold immobility standpoint, um, unless, you know, you have other things that would, would suggest those etiologies. And now transitioning to treatment, maybe we could first start with conservative or medical management for these patients. Yeah, certainly. So when we think about treatment, I think what really stands out up front is really understanding the patient's situation. So is this someone who, you know, is a work from home computer programmer who is like doesn't care that their voice is hoarse and they have no dysphagia? And then you're thinking, okay, well, maybe we just can observe this for a while. 
or you might be in a situation where, you know, the person doesn't bother by their voice, but, you know, they're, they've been admitted for aspiration pneumonia to the hospital because they're aspirating. So that's going to help you decide, like, I should probably intervene. And really, when we know there's a, a unilateral vocal fold immobility, regardless of the etiology, voice therapy by a high quality speech language pathologist really is a key part of this because it's going to provide you a, a number of pieces of information. So, for example, it's going to allow assessment of compensatory mechanisms to see how can they compensate without any intervention? You know, will that be adequate or do we need to think sooner for interventions? And also identify factors such as muscle hyperfunction that that might actually impair or need to be worked out to improve overall recovery. So those are issues that we need to consider. Something to, to think about you know, it's, it's accepted that prescribing corticosteroids is not routinely recommended um, unless there's something you see in the larynx, some kind of inflammation or something you think that would directly prove that just because the data doesn't support that at the current time. But once you assess how they're doing, that that's going to let you decide um, your next step. So, you know, understanding going back to that subjective outcome you got in the VHI, the VHI-10 are going to tell us if we need to move forward. Thinking about surgical intervention, Maybe we could just go in three broad groups, first being injection laryngoplasty, second being medialization, thyroplasty with or without um, arytenoid adduction, and then reinnervation procedures. So maybe could we first start with uh, injection laryngoplasty? What patients are you using that in and, and a little bit about the procedure itself? Yeah, absolutely. That's really a good way to think about this whole situation. I I would caution, and I think that probably this is a great spot to put in timing. So timing is key. We don't necessarily need to do a long-term permanent procedure on everyone that comes in with a unilateral vocal fold immobility one week after having like a cold or something and found to have unilateral vocal fold immobility because we have to give that time to improve. So, you know, the general accepted rule of thumb as well, you know, we're going to look at about maybe a year out, plus or minus lots of rabbit holes to go down there, happy to do it. But even if someone came in, um, had their thyroid surgery or cervical spine surgery, and the surgeon's like, I saw the nerve, I didn't cut it, it was intact at the end of the surgery. It's just a unilateral focal fold immobility that maybe it's from the nerve being stretched, you have to give that time. That being said, I think your setup is perfect. So if you think about what kind of temporary procedures you have, Um, you could do uh, an injection laryngoplasty. So in this case, there's a number of things that are important here to consider. So one, and I think this is worthy mentioning up front, is that the data actually support doing this procedure, even if we think the patient will recover. And this is an important consideration because invariably the patient is going to ask you this question in the clinic, like, well, if this is likely to come back because I was intubated for a while or I had a cold, then why don't I just deal with it, you know, and cough a little bit when I'm drinking my coffee and and it's just going to get better. Well, actually, so it turns out that um, you won't negatively impact a patient's long-term recovery or their opportunity to recover by doing an injection uh, medialization. It's going to, actually, there's some data to suggest that by doing that injection and letting them move forward with therapy and voice therapy, um, even in the setting that they don't get return of motion, it turns out that there's a decreased need for future procedures in that setting. So there's a lot of powerful reasons in the symptomatic patient who has things impacting their life that there's a real benefit to doing an injection medialization. So, you know, I think that's important to discuss um, with your patients at the time you see them because it's a source of concern across the board. So the other beauty of injection laryngoplasty is that there's a lot of options for this. So depending upon your equipment, comfort, the patient's comfort, your time, et cetera, and access to the OR, you can do this procedure as an in-office procedure, which is generally, you know, in my in my practice, what we like to do. Or, or you can take these patients in the OR, which I certainly do in, in some circumstances. And so in the office, you could do a transoral, transthyrohyoid, transcricothyroid, or transthyroid cartilage approach. So that's just one of four different approaches you could take to inject the vocal fold with a temporary material. So in the setting of this procedure, in this situation with unilateral vocal fold paralysis, we're talking about a temporary material. So hyaluronic acid or carboxymethylcellulose or collagen, more temporary 
type injectables. And, and there are a number of brand names and things you can use. And those differ than the longer term injectables. So, you know, calcium hydroxyapatite is, you know, technically temporary. But, you know, when you look at that, it's going to last 12 to 18 months in that area, which is, you know, probably more than you're looking for for temporary situations. So that's considered a more long term. And then, you know, from a uh, historical standpoint, Teflon was was used a long time ago because it is it is permanent, um, has a, a whole host of issues, largest being, you know, terrible granuloma formation down the road, um, which is problematic to deal with to get that out. So you're obviously going to go with a, a temporary injection. And then autologous fat, you know, there's lots of discussion about how long it lasts, but in many cases, it's really going to be considered more permanent again, so not not used in that that short term scenario. Those injectables can be done in the operating room or or in the clinic. Again, based on your comfort, your patient's comfort, your situation, your setup, your equipment. The great part about that is you can get patients near immediate relief and improvement. Particularly when we're talking about patients becoming short of breath, or you know, because they're losing all their air, they have so much air escape or or dysphagia. Like that's very 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 fast improvement. And then even with their voice, you can get near immediate improvement. Though that is almost always augmented by quality voice therapy. You know, there's this conceptual risk when I when I work with residents that, am I going to over-inject? Theoretically, I, I suppose, yeah, it's, it's probably possible. But when you really watch this, particularly in the clinic, you'll see that, you know, you're watching it happen. And, and I would say the majority of cases that people felt like their injection wasn't great was that they under-injected and probably didn't give as much closures as they wanted. And so, you know, what you want to do is you want to keep that kind of deep in the muscle and want to make sure you're not injecting the superficial lamina propria because in that case, you're going to impair vocal fold vibration. And so now you have a patient that has a tight voice that doesn't have vibratory function. And so that's one of those things that you want to avoid. Thankfully, with a you know temporary material, that's going to generally go away and how to deal with complications in, in office procedures is a whole nother discussion. But the reality is this is a great procedure, short, even if you do it in the OR, get the patient relief, and then it allows you to then watch them over time and decide what's happening. Now, if they think they had an iatrogenic injury and, and uh, you know, the nerve was just stretched during a neck procedure, you can watch and see what happens, but you're going to follow that patient closer to a year before you kind of dive into something more permanent. And maybe next, could we talk a little bit about medialization thyroplasty or a type 1 thyroplasty? Yeah, absolutely. So now we're way down the pathway of, we think that this patient's not going to make a recovery. And we've watched it for a while. Say we thought the nerve was stretched after, you know, a thyroid surgery and, and not cut. And so we've waited a year plus minus EMG, probably not really going to improve. And the patients are having trouble with quality of life again, either swallow or voice issues. And so as a result, we need to do something to meoize, uh the vocal fold. So in broad strokes, we're going to say, let's approach this with a medialization laryngoplasty slash thyroplasty where, you know, we're talking about medializing the vocal fold inward with some form of implant in such a way that we're properly positioning the vocal fold. So there are a number of ways to approach this. We can kind of break this down largely into the context of celastic block or Gore-Tex strips, which both are used as safe long-term materials to meualize that vocal fold. In, this, in the setting of this, you're going to keep the patient awake in the operating room so you can talk to them and hear their voice improve during the surgery, and you're going to visualize the larynx with a scope. And so there's a number of, quote unquote, artistic ways to set this up. Some people hang the scope from a pole. Other people, you can simply put a scope laying on a stack of towels on a mayo stand you know, into the patient's nose as you're watching it. Uh, watching your procedure. Some people have an extra provider who could do a scope at the time of the, the medialization. What you're going to do is you're going to numb the patient up, make an incision, dissect down onto the thyroid cartilage itself, make a small window. The window size is going to vary depending upon if you're doing a elastic block or a Gore-Tex strip. And then, you know, try to keep that really inferior, which is generally, you know, in my experience, one of the ways that I see you know, young surgeons or learners making errors they end up a little bit high, but you're going to see as you make that window and dissect in there that when you look on the screen at the larynx and you're you're using an instrument to probe, you're going to see that you're, you know, either too high, too low, or just the right spot. So inferior posteriorly, you're going to start putting in your implant to see that immediate feedback of the patient's voice. And, and obviously, more of these you do and the better you get in terms of being somewhat efficient with your time to avoid the effects of edema, you're really going to be able to set up 
a nice voice for that patient after which you can close up the next, you know, put a bandage there, send them home. Um, and then they're going to do great. Now, things to consider is there, there are situations where perhaps that nerve injury has caused the arytenoid to become a little bit unstable because it's not kind of held in position or, or lashed in position by these muscles because they're all denervated where that arytenoid kind of slides off and gets pushed over by the functional vocal fold. Or really sometimes during surgery, you're just not happy with your voice that you can get with a simple medialization, be it either a cut strip of Gore-Tex folded into position or, or a silastic block. And in that situation, you can do an arytenoid adduction. So it, for that, you know, in very broad strokes, you're going to take a needle and lasso or, or get the edge of the arytenoid and then pull it forward. So you're causing medial rotation of the arytenoid and proper placement of the vocal fold for phonation. Um, and then you do your medialization after that. And I personally, I think you get a really huge outcome in a, a correctly chosen and performed retinoid deduction. With that in mind, it's certainly a more technically challenging procedure than a medialization uh, thyroplasty. With that said, you know, just like everything in medicine, we're, we're making lots of new advancements. And so there are, you know, some opportunities where there's some protocols that are being worked out now where you can put the patient to sleep to do your retinoid portion because it's a little more uncomfortable for the patient, you know, depending upon your, or, or for you, depending upon your experience and, and comfort level. But uh, then you can wake them up still on the table and then have them talk while you do your medialization portion. So, you know, I think that, you know, albeit, you know, challenging procedure, or at least a little more technically complicated, I, I think it's a phenomenal procedure and correctly chosen patient to, to really give them a home run voice. And lastly, what about reinnervation procedures? Yeah, I think the the frontier for reinnervation procedures is here, and I think that in in the correct setting, the, these are very valuable procedures. So, you know, a few things to consider here is this seems to be the most effective in the younger population. So probably not someone who's seventy five. Um, with that in mind, plenty of people have certainly had success in that scenario. So, you know, the aim here is despite some of this intense and new research being done in various facilities where we're trying to get uh, muscle tone bulk and provide the same kind of response you're going to get from an injection or a medialization thyroplasty. So in this case, um, what, what you're most typically going to do is just a, a nerve to nerve reanastomosis. So you're going to take another nerve in, in the local region, and that might be like the ANSA cervicalis. It's a great option. So you take the ANSA and loop it back to the recurrent laryngeal nerve just as it enters the larynx. And so you sew it together there. And so you might use, you know, traditional suturing the nerve back together you might use one of the one of the newer neurocouplers and all of these you know are going to allow you to end up getting essentially synkinesis so you're not going to have vocal full motion but you know overall that synkinesis and bulk is going to allow you to produce adequate phonation much the same way that you end up with a good voice after immunization thyroplasty now this is going to take a few months at best or shortest to work. So you're going to do probably a concomitant temporary vocal fold augmentation at the same time. Uh, you know, some centers advocate doing an retinoid adduction to position things and fix it in place to then optimize bulk. It depends on your experience and what, and what you read. There are other things that and other types of this that people do. Obviously, right, if you were in the OR when this happened, you do a, you know, immediate end-to-end anastomosis of recurrent laryngeal nerve, but that's really not the setting of which we're talking. We're seeing these patients months later and follow up and doing these procedures, you know, far out. Probably ANSAs, lately the best. You could try, like I said, more specific targeted anastomosis. So anastomosis, the ANSA to just the adductor branches of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So you've figured out where the PCA comes off, not re-innervated that branch and re the rest. There are other forms of reinnervation that have been explored over over the years. Um, so briefly, that would be a neuromuscular pedicle graft. In that case, you're you know implanting a piece of muscle. You need to make sure at that case that you are not having other identical innervation from two different sources because that that makes it, renders it ineffective. And then, you know, from a, a larger standpoint, probably discussed in the setting of of bilateral vocal fold process, you have selective reinnervation with like the phrenic nerve to coincide with breathing, but that's generally not done for just a single unilateral vocal fold. Really, it's worthwhile saying, well, what's the best thing for the patient? That really is up to the patient when you look at, you know, the outcomes of of what are they looking for? What are their goals from getting this? What is their job? What are their voice needs? How bad is their swallowing? What's their health status? What could they tolerate? So interestingly enough, um, patients who are considered generally not great anesthesia candidates 
can do really well with the medialization laryngoplasty because they don't go to sleep when you do a, a thyroplasty with, with silastic block or Gore-Tex. So in the setting of small gaps, autologous fat transfer might be a long-term solution for somebody who the nerve is not moving because they have a lung tumor and we're not sure what how that's going to be worked out for the next few years. You can do a a longer term injection with like calcium hydroxyapatite and revisit the situation in 12 to 18 months when that wears out just to see how they do. So I, I, there is certainly not a recipe for success here. I think this is a great opportunity for a thoughtful resident or thoughtful otolaryngologist to really look in their tool set and say, what, what are my outcomes with these various procedures? You know, how can I apply them in each individual patient setting to really find and optimize my outcomes? And when we think about expectations, prognosis, follow-up, that sort of thing, any comments you have about those ideas? Yeah, I think that you certainly, in the patient, if you're doing a temporary procedure or early on that has a unilateral vocal fold immobility, A, you need to get to the bottom of why. So if it was a cervical spine surgery and they suddenly have uh, immobile vocal fold, you have a sense of why. But if we need to work out the imaging, we certainly need to see them back to make sure there's no tumor we've missed, even in the setting of them being compensated and not having a lot of voice issues. In the patient for which uh, you do initial procedure, you need to set up a follow-up. So say you use carboxymethylcellulose, you're going to want to set them up to follow you back in a couple months just to see how they're doing, how their outcomes are. And then, you know, you want to follow the situation to its logical conclusion. So either that's vocal fold uh, return of motion, or in the setting of vocal fold paralysis that you've worked out, you've done your due diligence and realized that it's been a while and it's not going to come back. Generally, like we said, say thyroid surgery where they thought it was just stretched, but it hasn't returned close to a year, then then you're going to say, I'm going to do my my uh, penultimate procedure, thyroplasty, renoid reduction, renovation, et cetera, and then ensure that they have adequate outcome um, before kind of sending them off. But, you know, I think it's important to ensure along the way, the patients are getting the care they need. And and that's going to include high quality voice therapy with a good speech language pathologist, and then adequate follow-up to make sure that you're you're checking in with the the patient. Well, Dr. Dion, I think that pretty much covers all the questions I had for you. Was there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is worthwhile to mention? Yeah, I think the, the one thing I'd mention is that you know, there's, there's always more that can be discussed or said about, you know, what's the chance of recovery? And that's what every patient wants to know. And the hard part about this is we don't always know why. And, and each of those situations presents their own unique issues. So in the patient that the surgeon is sure they didn't, that the nerve was not transected during surgery, but there's no motion, you know, I think time's going to help us tell. And so as time progresses, we can tell that patient like, hey, we'll know that, you know, your chance of recovery each time we see you is going to be less, right? So if your nerve is not working two weeks after your neck surgery, you have the best chance of, of recovery versus if if you come to see me six months later and it's still not working, your chances of recovery are, are far less. And so that's kind of been worked out in some interesting, well-written papers, finding that those percentages quickly drop off. So if if you're going to recovery, your likelihood of recovery is generally in that first three to six months. And then, you know, your chances of recovery after that are are very, very small. Though with that in mind, we still do because of the healing process of nerves wait towards a year. So, you know, I think that that's a frustrating part for patients and residents and oralaryngologists to consider because we all want to give the patient an answer. But, you know, sometimes in medicine, we just got to let it take some time and see, see what we can do. And again, you know, as far as EMG, that really depends on your setting, your scenario, your comfort level. And, and, you know, in many cases, um, it maybe isn't going to change your clinical practice in terms of what, of what you're going to do. You know, overall, I just hope this was a chance to, to give some, you know, kind of insight into the thought process of approaching this and, and get people thinking about it. Well, Dr. Dian, we really appreciate your time. So thanks for coming on. Anytime. Glad to be here. So in summary of today's episode, patients with unilateral vocal fold immobility can present in a wide variety of ways affecting many ages, and they may be entirely asymptomatic, but oftentimes patients will complain of some hoarseness, some breathy dysphonia, perhaps even maybe some dysphagia or aspiration depending on the underlying cause, and and potentially even stridor in children. Workup includes a comprehensive history and head and neck exam with laryngoscopy and video stroboscopy. As recommended by the most recent CPG on dysphonia, any dysphonia that does not improve in four weeks' time or if there's a concern for a serious underlying cause, it's very important that patients undergo 
uh, laryngoscopy. Other diagnostic considerations uh, include video fluoroscopic swallow study as well as imaging of the head and neck to identify potential underlying etiology such as malignancy and to risk stratify for the potential of underlying aspiration. There are many different routes of treatment, um, everything from conservative medical management to surgical intervention. Surgical intervention typically falls within three overarching categories, including injection laryngoplasty, medialization thyroplasty, or type 1 thyroplasty with or without retinoid adduction, and then uh, reinnervation procedures. Long-term um, patient engagement in voice therapy um, is really key to their success, and oftentimes these patients end up being very happy with their voice quality. Uh, long term. All right, now I'll move on to the question portion where I'll just ask a question, pause for a couple seconds, wait for you to think about the response, and then give the answer. So, first question for today is What is the most common cause of unilateral true vocal fold paralysis, and what is the most common malignant cause? So, the most common overarching cause is surgical iatrogenic injury most common malignant cause is actually lung carcinoma. Second question, what is the name of the motor nucleus of the vagus nerve and what are the findings in Wallenberg or lateral medullary syndrome? So we briefly touched on this um, in the differential diagnosis, tough question, but the nucleus of the vagus nerve is called the nucleus ambiguous. It's located in the medulla. And then lateral medullary syndrome occurs secondary and infarct of the posterior inferior cerebellar artery and classically results in vocal fold paralysis, dysphagia, loss of pain and temperature on the ipsilateral face and then contralateral body and maybe even ipsilateral Horner syndrome. Third question related to physical exam, define the maximum phonation time and findings on vitostroboscopy. So the maximum phonation time is defined by the length with which a patient, after inhaling as deeply as possible, can sustain a vowel. Normative values are 15 to 25 seconds for women and 25 to 35 for men. And then on video stroboscopy, just recall that we always want to evaluate five primary things. First being vocal fold symmetry, next being closure, third being amplitude, fourth being the periodicity, which... If you can't see the vocal folds moving, it means the motion isn't periodic, and then the mucosal wave. In unilateral vocal fold paralysis, you'll classically see an increased amplitude on the paralyzed side. And last question, what nerve has similar structural composition to the recurrent laryngeal nerve and therefore serves as a good option during reinnervation procedures? Correct answer here is the ANSA cervicalis. Alrighty, well, that'll wrap things up for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.